Good to see you this morning, uh, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. Maybe some people here thought they were in the 8.30 service. This is the 9.30 service. I think I lost an hour trying to figure out whether I would lose an hour or gain an hour. But good to see you this morning. We are continuing in our sermon series, Obey Everything. That's taken from Jesus, what's called the Great Commission, where he told his disciples, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. So what we've been doing for the last year or so is camping out in the Gospel of Matthew, looking at the commands of Jesus. The command that we're looking at today is his command to remember me. We're going to remember Jesus through the communion, the Lord's Supper. We'll be partaking of that in just a few minutes here. But we're going to study that a little bit and look at four ways to remember Jesus in the Lord's Supper. Number one, we remember Jesus by looking back, by looking back. Matthew chapter 26 and verse 14. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? He replied, go into the city to a certain man, tell him the teacher says, my appointed time is near, I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. So the Lord's Supper, what we think of as communion, the Lord's Supper, was instituted during a Jewish feast, an annual Jewish feast. What feast was that? Passover, mentioned three times in this passage. In the annual feast of Passover, the Jews looked back. In Jesus' day, they were looking back about 1,500 years back when God delivered the Israelites from Egyptian bondage, Egyptian slavery. How did God deliver the Israelites from Egyptian slavery? Well, as you know, he brought 10 plagues against Egypt through the hand of Moses. The final plague, the one that broke the will of Pharaoh, it was pronounced that a death angel would be moving through the land of Egypt, taking the life of the firstborn son in every home. Now the Jews, the Israelites, were instructed in order to be spared from this plague, this judgment of God, they were to slaughter a lamb, take its blood, smear it on the doorpost of their homes, and then get inside the house. And as long as they were inside the house that was covered with the blood of the lamb, that death angel would pass over those homes. Thus the name, Passover. So in Exodus chapter 12, God told Moses, gave him instructions, I want you to memorialize this Passover event with a meal. And he even dictated the menu. And the items on the menu have symbolic consequence. So for instance, of course, there's the lamb. They were to eat a lamb at the Passover feast. We already saw what the lamb was all about. They were to eat unleavened bread. Unleavened bread was in, on the menu. By the way, anybody know what in the Passover, what did the unleavened bread symbolize? That's right. I heard a couple of places. It symbolized the haste with which the Israelites had to flee Egypt. They had to leave in a hurry. Because they had to leave in a hurry, they couldn't take time to bake bread that had leaven in it. Leaven is yeast. It's yeast that makes the dough rise. That takes time for the dough to rise when there's yeast in it. That's why when we have the Lord's Supper every Sunday, 
We don't have nice, fluffy, Marie Callender sourdough biscuits with grape juice. We've got that flat cracker that's bread without yeast. They had packed up their mixing bowls, and so they had to make the, the bread very fast. So that represented the haste. All right, third thing on the menu. So you got the lamb, you got the bread. Third thing on their menu for the Passover meal was bitter herbs. Bitter herbs. I participated in a reenactment of a Passover meal when I was in the youth group. And they passed out the bitter herbs when it came time. It was horseradish in this case. I'd never seen horseradish in its original plant form. I didn't know what it was. Popped a big clump into my mouth. Found out all about bitter herbs. My eyes were watering. My nose was running. That's bitter. But what were the bitter herbs? What did that symbolize in the Passover meal? The bitterness of the slavery of the Israelites, their 400 plus years of slavery. Slavery is bitter. So bitter herbs are on the menu. So they'll remember that every year, how bitter it was. And God delivered them from that. Now, a fourth part of the Passover meal, fourth and final ingredient was fruit of the vine, sometimes referred to as wine. Four cups of wine in a traditional Passover meal. Now, what did God say was the purpose of the wine in Exodus chapter 12? Well, if you're having trouble with that one, it's because it's a trick question. God did not prescribe wine for the Passover meal. Did you realize that? I just realized that researching for uh, this message, I'd never really realized that. That was a tradition of the Jewish rabbis. They added that in later. The, la the rabbis loved them some wine. So they added in four cups of wine, and according to the Jewish rabbis, it represented the redemption of Israel by God, their release, their freedom, and their redemption. And there's nothing wrong with that. By Jesus' day, it was a part of the meal, and he included it in his Passover observance. So it's out of this context that Jesus established what we call the communion or the Lord's Supper, and actually repurposed a few of those elements as we shall see. But we look back, as we take the Lord's Supper, we look back about 2,000 years now to when Jesus died on the cross and delivered us not from physical death, but from eternal death so that we could have life with him. And now, as long as we realize the context, we can look back even further than that, another 1,500 years to the origin of the Passover meal itself. So one of the good reasons, one of the reasons it's good to read the whole Bible, be aware of what's in the Old Testament, because it often has such an impact about what, what we're reading in the New Testament. How do we remember Jesus in the Lord's Supper? By looking back. Secondly, we remember Jesus by looking around. Looking around. Continuing with verse 20. When it was evening, Jesus sat down at the table with the twelve. So they get together and they sit down at the table. Now, when you picture a table, the table they sat at, you should not picture your dining room table that's 31 inches off the ground. Leonardo da Vinci, a brilliant artist, no doubt about it, but in his painting of The Last Supper, it's not historically accurate. They're not sitting at a table like that all ready for the selfie. The actual table was much lower to the ground, just far enough off to keep the, the food off of the floor. Usually, it would have been U-shaped, I've got a picture of it here. They would recline on pillows. Often they would recline on their left elbow 
and sometimes leaning back on the chest of the person who was next to them. So we know John was leaning back on the chest of Jesus. Jesus was probably leaning back on the chest of Judas, or Judas was on his other side, leaning back on him. But my point here is, when they were partaking of the Passover meal, they were in close proximity to each other. Much closer, probably, than any of us have ever been when we've partaken of the Lord's Supper, than we would ever be comfortable with. There was no social distancing there. This is what we might call a super spreader event. And they were not only close in proximity, they, they were just close as, as friends and as companions. This is the original life group. These people have been doing life together for about three years now. They're all up in each other's business. They know each other well. So Passovers were designed to be done in community just like the Lord's Supper by design, is to be taken in community. You can take the elements of the Lord's Supper by yourself. Most of us have probably done that. You could do that out at the beach or camping in the woods. Live streamers probably have crackers and grape juice, some of you, and you're going to partake of the Lord's Supper in your home. Nothing wrong with that, but understand that by design, part of what's taking place here in the Lord's Supper is a sharing with other believers, with the family of God, the church. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16, don't have this slide, but in the King James Version, that's where the Lord's Supper is referred to as communion in the Bible. Communion. The word there in the original language is koinonia. You probably heard that word before, koinonia, which literally means sharing. This is something that we share not only with the Lord, but we share with each other in the church. Now one thing I'm encouraged by is seeing more and more people now who are returning to in-person services at the church. Live stream has been a godsend for many churches, not just this one, but including this one during this coronavirus. It's enabled us to continue to connect with each other, especially those who maybe have fragile health and shut-ins continues to be that. But as the vaccines get out and people are more and more comfortable coming out in public, folks are returning, and I think that is a very good thing. As good as live stream may be, it cannot compare to in-person services. It's like the difference between talking to your fiancé on the phone and talking to her in person. There's something special about driving to the church, coming in together, singing songs with one another, sharing the Lord's Supper, hearing a message together. There's something special about a spirit-filled worship service where we are accountable to each other and we influence each other. My mom, who's, uh, you know, she's older. I'm not going to say how old she is, but she's old enough to be my mom and I'm 62. She has been watching our live stream services for about the last year. And I was talking to her last week and she's you going to watch our live stream? No, I'm not going to watch it this week. I said, why not? She said, I got both my shots, and I'm going back to church at Inglewood. And I said, good for you, Mom. Uh, make sure you watch the rerun, though, on Facebook. All right, so we look back, we look around, we do this in community with each other. And then a third way that we remember Jesus during the Lord's Supper is we look inside. We look inside. Continue with verse 21. While they were eating, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. 
greatly distressed, each one asked in turn, am I the one, Lord? Now, I like what I see here in their reaction. The reaction of the disciples when Jesus reveals that there's a betrayer at the table in the sense that they don't engage in finger-pointing. Is he the one? I mean, with their penchant for bickering, you could almost see this happen. Peter blurting out, a betrayer, it's got to be Matthew. We all know you can't trust a tax collector. You could just see that kind of thing going on. But they don't. They don't do that. Each person looks inside with brutal honesty. They search out their hearts. They seem to realize they all have the potential to be that guy. And so they, each one, they look at Jesus who knows their hearts and who knows the future, and each one asks the question, am I the one? The Lord's Supper is a time for introspection. It's a time for self-examination. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 28 and verse 31. Paul writes, you should examine yourself before eating the bread and drinking the cup. If we would examine ourselves we would not be judged by God. Self-examination. I know sometimes when I'm preaching, I'll look out there and I'll see you married types. You married types, sometimes I'll notice that a husband is elbowing his wife or the wife is nudging her husband when maybe I've touched upon one of their weaknesses. And parents sometimes will be poking their teenagers and, ah, you better listen up, but he's talking to you right now. And on occasion, somebody will come up to me after a sermon and say, good sermon, Steve. I know someone who needs to hear that. Yeah, well, so do I. Now, we've all said that and we've all done that. But you know, examining other people, is, that's easy. That's too easy. It's so easy to see our spouse's flaws or where our children are falling short. The real hard work is always self-examination. We're so blind to our own faults and shortcomings. Brandon Manning, great author, wrote the Ragamuffin Gospel. He wrote Posers, Fakers, and Wannabes, Recovering Alcoholic. He writes this, When I get honest, I admit I am a bundle of paradoxes. I believe and I doubt. I hope and get discouraged. I love and I hate. I feel bad about feeling good. I feel guilty about not feeling guilty. I am trusting and suspicious. I am honest and I still play games. To live by grace means to acknowledge my whole life story, the light side and the dark. In admitting my shadow side, I learn who I am and what God's grace means. The Lord's Supper is a good time for us sometimes to just look within ourselves and ask the question, am I the one? And sometimes the answer is yes. And when that's the case, then we confess and we come back to the well of grace. Hours after Judas betrayed Jesus, Peter denied Jesus three times. But they had two very different reactions. In despair, Judas went out and took his life. But in bitter tears of repentance, Peter came back and found forgiveness and usefulness in the kingdom. Brennan Manning continues, Accepting the reality of our sinfulness means accepting our authentic self. Judas could not face his shadow side. Peter could. We're remembering Jesus in the Lord's Supper. We look back. We look around. We look inside. And finally, we look across. 
We look across. Verse 26, And as they were eating, Jesus took some bread and blessed it, and then he broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples, saying, Take, take this and eat it, for this is my body. And he took a cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. He gave it to them and said, Each of you drink from it, for this is my blood, which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It is poured out as a sacrifice to forgive the sins of many. We look across. Now when I say look across, it's really bad grammar. I, what I mean by that is we look at the cross. So it's a stretch, but it allows me to keep all of my four main points as prepositions. And for some reason, I wanted to do that. So indulge me. But what I mean is we look at the cross. And Jesus takes uh, some of the elements here of that traditional Passover feast and repurposes their meaning their import, their significance, which was audacious, if you think about it. But nevertheless, he said, now this bread is my body. Not that it was literally his body, but that it represented his body. And now this wine represents my blood shed for the forgiveness of many. These, these elements of that Passover feast, that ancient 1,500-year-old feast, foreshadowed things to come. Old Testament realities that foreshadowed New Testament realities. You know what foreshadowing is. If you were in high school or college, you took an English lit class, you probably studied about foreshadowing with an author or a filmmaker, introduces something in the book or the film early on that foreshadows something to come in the future. Let's have some fun with this for just a second. We haven't had any fun yet. I've got uh, two or three slides from movies here. I'm going to show you the slide, the picture. See if you can guess the movie and what is foreshadowed by this picture. Okay, let's start with the first one. Now you should get the movie right away, right? Wizard of Oz. Her name is Mrs. Gulch right here in the first part of the movie. What does she foreshadow? The Wicked Witch. She's the Wicked Wicked Witch of the West. But in the first part of the movie, she's riding her bicycle and they got that freaking music that plays and she's got a mean demeanor. And even when they're talking to her, they refer to her as a witch. And if you ever noticed that early on in the movie, and then she becomes the Wicked Witch later on. They do a lot of that in The Wizard of Oz with the farmhands and how they speak and act. Okay, so foreshadowing. The second one now, the second one is the hardest one, I think. Nobody got this in the first service. Does anybody recognize the movie from this one picture? All right. I may have to give it to you, but I didn't hear it. The movie is Batman Begins. It's the origin movie on Batman. Batman Begins. And anybody get the foreshadowing? It's the Joker. So at the end of Batman Begins, they tell Batman there's a new villain in town. He's committed some homicides. He left this at the crime scene. They hand him the evidence bag. Inside the evidence bag is this card, the Joker. And it's foreshadowing the next movie where the Joker is the villain in the movie The Dark Knight. All right, I may leave that out. Hey, we may leave that one out on the next one. Nobody gets that one. All right, and then let's do the third one. Okay, what's the movie? Monsters, all the grandparents know, Monsters, Inc. Now, there's something foreshadowed here in Monsters, Inc. Do you see it? The little Nemo there. So the little girl is handing... Sully a stuffed toy that's a clownfish that looks suspiciously like Nemo. Monsters, Inc. came out two years before Finding Nemo. 
But what they cleverly did at the very end of this movie was foreshadow a movie they were producing that was coming out two years later. All right, you did pretty good. Now, one more. This final one is an audio clip, just an audio. When you hear the audio, tell me what the, what the movie is and what's being foreshadowed. Jaws. Yeah, Jaws. Okay, come on. I got 30 seconds of it, but enough's enough. When you hear that music, you know somebody's about to become jaw, uh, shark bait. Somebody's going to get eaten. That's just what that symbolizes. So, so all right. So sometimes we think, well, you know, authors, filmmakers are so clever and they can work these subtleties into their movies and their books. But God is always obvious. God is not always obvious. He's brilliant. He is subtle. He's actually the king and the master of foreshadowing. In theology, this is called typology, typology. Those of you who are in Core 52 study, you've studied this on the chapter on Moses, typology. So when you've got a person or an event in the Old Testament, it's, it's called a type of a reality in the New Testament, and the New Testament reality is called the antitype. So you have type and antitype. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11, Paul writing of the Old Testament says, these things happen to them as an example, but the word in the original language translated example is tupos, which also means type. Happened to them as a type, but they were written down for our instruction. And so what we have seen then is this unleavened bread, which represented the haste originally with which the Israelites left Egypt is now repurposed by Jesus and finds its antitype, its fulfillment in the body of Christ. And these cups of wine now, they find their fulfillment in the reality of the blood of Christ. Those are two of the elements. There's a third element. Jesus does not explicitly mention it, but Paul does. Because the Passover lamb itself is repurposed and is a type of Jesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us. Even those houses that were covered by the blood of the Lamb, when you think about it, were a type of Christ. Those were safe houses. And as long as the Jews were inside the house covered by the blood of the Lamb, they did not come under the judgment of God. And Christ is our safe house. When we are in Christ, we will not experience the condemnation or judgment for our sins. What does the Bible say? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are where? In Christ Jesus, as long as you're in. When you were saved, when you became a Christian, you were baptized into Christ, the position of salvation, the safe house, so to speak. Romans 6.3, don't you know? All of you who are baptized were baptized into Christ Jesus. Galatians 3.27, all of us who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ our Passover lamb.